0: welcome to the mds podcast we have the pleasure to have dr tammy headley dr headley established and leads the tics and neurodevelopmental moment disorder service at evelina london children's hospital and she's internationally known for her active research and projects including tics and stereotypies. thank you for coming today it's my pleasure. Thank you for the invite. So uh, we just heard a beautiful and tremendous presentation about stereotypies, which is a phenomenology that it's in itself interesting, but also to just to tease apart in terms of what we're seeing and observing. And perhaps the definition may be different from tick disorders, but I would like for the audience for, to listen to you and tell us about what is a stereotypy. What sort of research do we need to do in Stereotopy to and stem better the phenomena?
1: Well, thank you so much. I was very honoured uh, that the MDS invited me to talk about stereotopies because it's a subject very close to my heart. I've been looking after children with stereotypes for a number of years and one of the things that I'm going to talk about with you, I hope, and share is actually often what the children have explained to me is is in going on in their worlds yeah. when they're experiencing these repetitive, rhythmic, interesting movements. Mm. So when I think about stereotypies, the first thing I'd say is the kind of simple stereotypies, things like nail biting, finger flapping, and maybe even playing with a pen, mm-hmm. twirling of the hair. We don't really think of these as being pathological. They're almost like personality traits, aren't they, that you see commonly in lots of people. But then you start to see more of the more complex stereotopies, and these are children that do more pacing, twisting, unusual hand movements, or facial stretching, mouth opening. And they are movements which frighten parents when mm-hmm. they see them. And quite often they look cute at the beginning. They start under one, six months, nine months, as I showed the videos today. They, they tend to be with excitement, when people blew bubbles in the high chair, we saw the children, or if they're playing with a toy and they look like the child's just excited, or they might have them when they're bored. But when they go on and become more complex and prolonged and interrupt the child's activity and the Mm -hmm. child is engaging within them for longer periods, the parents can get concerned. And a very common concern is, is it Tourette's? Is it ticks? Or is it epilepsy? And people go to see paediatricians and often they come away with the diagnosis, if you like, of these aren't epileptic seizures. And the parents say to me when they come to see me with the movements, I was told it wasn't epilepsy. But that didn't help me because I didn't know what epilepsy was. So I said, well, are you getting the label for the movements? And interestingly, it's often the parents that are finding the label. Mm-hmm. Like they're Googling the movements, they're looking at forums, they're joining Facebook and they're self-diagnosing with complex motor stereotopies. And then they may, you know, contact our clinic and say, we hear that you see children.
0: I saw something very interesting you presented in the meeting. And it, this is that subtype of stereotypies. I guess it's different in the way that it has different sort of response to the environment What is the differences between this specific or subtype of stereotypes from the other ones that we know?
1: So I think the first thing to say, when people see stereotopies, they automatically, if they're trained neurologists or pediatricians, often Mm. think, is it autism? Mm -hmm. And one of the things we've described in our work on subtyping stereotopies is that you can have stereotypes without autism, Mm -hmm. and there's probably a spectrum of the movements as well. The other thing people think about is rightly, do we need to think of neurodegenerative genetic syndromic diagnoses? So, of course, doing a full developmental assessment, measuring head circumference, looking for additional neurology like dystonia, chorea, myoclonus that's all really important in the initial assessments. But I think what the subtype we were talking about today was the intense imagery (laughs) subtype. And intense imagery is a term we use to describe children who do stereotypical movements and they describe that by doing the movements it's semi-voluntary sometimes, initially it might have been involuntary, but they do them to enhance imagery in their minds and the imagery is often about superpowers, you know, they want to be a a spider-man or there might be a train driver we heard the child today who was a racing car driver sometimes children describe being famous sports people and scoring goals in international matches and football matches or cricket matches and so they engage in this imagery but at the same time as doing very complex Mm -hmm. movements which don't correlate with what you might expect, so they don't look like they're playing football. Maybe they're not doing in- mouth-stretching or complex hand movements yeah. and sometimes frightening-looking movements. You know, the videos I showed today, some of them you could, uh, you could, I'm sure you'd agree, look a bit career form dystonic, posturing and unusual, but they can be distracted out of the movements when their name is called or when they're interrupted. Sometimes they don't like being interrupted mm-hmm. because it's quite a compelling thing to engage in it's very engaging and intense that's why we called it intense the children get annoyed with you when you try to interrupt them but the movement and the imagery come together some children say the imagery comes first and then they do the movements to make it brighter or more colorful or more engaging and sometimes it's the movements that come first and obviously there's children who have similar movements you ask are you thinking about anything what are you thinking about? And they say nothing. So there are children who engage in these motor starters. Look the same, but don't have the imagery. Yeah.
0: And so could could I ask, with these children, do they have any abnormalities or comorbidities? Like, is their school performance okay, or they have like ADHD traits or any? So uh, that's
1: the commonest thing we found. Very interesting question because. The commonest association with the co-occurring condition in that group, and we've looked at them very carefully, lots of them with neurocognitive mm-hmm. in-depth profiling. We've published a, a paper on a small cohort, but we, we do regularly assess the children with a psychologist and with a educationalist and with a psychiatrist. So we do an MDT clinic. And the commonest co-occurring condition, probably in up to 40% of our children that we see is ADHD or... Whether I I, I hesitate to use the term D because it's not always diagnosed, but they have attentional differences that really often find it difficult to pay attention to the external world. So they are failing sometimes in school, despite being quite bright on cognitive profiling. That's probably more about the way the school is testing children to their true ability, but they do struggle and often they internalise in the classroom. So the problems present in school because they're doing lots of movements in school. Now, whether that's to partly self-soothe mm-hmm. because they're anxious about the work, there's lots of theories about how the environment impacts on the neurobiology of the motor stereotypy, which we, we think of as primary neurobiological genetic neurotransmitter. Where, where's the pathway? People have talked about the anterior cingulate gyrus, GABA. Dopamine, yeah. choline balance, and things. Yeah. But I think the environment plays a role because some children tell us they're much more likely to do the movements if they're very anxious.
0: And one last question: what is the, the clinicians or the MDS, the studio, to invest or knowledge about stereotypes? What is your view?
1: Well, my aim, my dream would be to work with some of the adult neurologists who see adults with maybe much more subtle or privatised stereotopies? I don't know really whether they would present to the adult neurologist or whether it's more of a neuropsychiatric presentation, but there's a subgroup, and this obviously isn't everybody with stereotopies, but a subgroup of adults who are sometimes the parents of the children we see and sometimes adults that have contacted us because of our work, where they say, I have intense imagery... And can you help me? My question to them is Do you have any movements? And they said, Well, I did when I was a child, but I've learned to do the movements in a much more subtle form. So their presentation is I'm compelled to do this imagery and it's impairing my life. For example, I'm late for work because of the necessity mm. to spend hours daydreaming in this world. Or they may say, my wife's divorced me or, you know, my part, I don't have a partner because I'd rather be with my fantasy world partner. And so we're hearing lots and lots of stories. And a parallel stream of work is going on with cognitive neuroscientists and psychologists and neuropsychiatrists in the world, internationally, mm-hmm. talking about something called maladaptive daydreaming. So we've got our heads together, talked together, and now we ask people who are self-reported maladaptive daydreamers, are you engaging in any repetitive or rhythmic or unusual movements that you'd rather not engage in? And these adults are saying to us, actually, yes, I've always had this movement. I always twist my pen or I pace, and it helps me with my daydreaming. But also I'm not always aware I'm doing it, so they could be doing it for hours at a time. What we don't know, unfortunately, is how common this trait is and whether it's a spectrum where in many people it's really mild and some people, of course, then are impaired but other people just have a bit of daydreaming. There's a little bit of work in that community looking at maladaptive daydreaming but they haven't made the link yet with the movements and that's what we're trying to kind of explore together.
0: It sounds fascinating. Hopefully in the next years, adult neurologists and uh, pediatric neurologists can come together and understand these behaviors in more detail but again i would like to thank you for coming to our podcast and and i would recommend all the audience to go and look up the papers published by Dr. Hadley thanks again thank you.
1: The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website.